Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I am Ed Reed, Emerging Markets Editor at Energy Voice. As you may tell, I'm not actually Alistair Thomas, who's been stretched off the pitch just in the in the, in the opening minutes of the day. So I'm, I've stepped into his shoes. Hopefully he will not regret his decision to fall ill at this critical juncture. Chaps, how are you? And also... Um, you know, having re- recorded this week, obviously big news this week for uh, the, the the boss of BP has is, is resigning, has resigned with immediate effect. Who had that had that on their uh, on their on their bingo card for this week? Not me. Um, <laughs> I think of all of the predictions I was going to make, that would have been very low down the list. Of all the sort of big CEOs to maybe prompt a little mini scandal, I think probably Bernard was was lower down the list as well. What about you, Ryan? I think if you did have it on the bingo card list, you should start buying lottery tickets now. Uh, I feel like that was a, a yeah. I feel like if you've predicted that that uh, you've got one hell of a crystal ball. <laughs> that uh, yeah, I think you've yeah. I think uh, that it was it was a bit, a bit of a shock. Like like Andy said, it's uh, quite a chunky story, quite an interesting one, and uh, I don't think one that anyone foresaw. Right? I mean, if, have you? Can you recall anything like this, Ed, in, in recent years in terms of? high-profile step-downs? Well, I mean, I suppose uh, BP is no stranger to their CEOs leaving in, should we say, accelerated circumstances. Lord Brown, I think, uh, had to step down pretty swiftly um, after trying to cover up a scandal. So... Yeah, but who knows? I suppose. I suppose the big question is. I mean, I suppose kind of maybe trying try to get back on uh, on on the sort of the serious uh, subject matter of energy. Um, do you think it will change how uh, the the outlook for BP? It's obviously under un, under Bernard Looney, uh, quite quite sort of you know pro sort of hydrogen offshore wind things like that. We've seen some of that swing back the other way. Do you think? Do you think that uh, a change at the top will have an impact in that way, Andy? I uh, I. Do I mean I think you can see big uh, reflections in when what's happened at Shell with uh, Wells Sawan, who's kind of really repositioned it. I think seems to have stripped back a lot of the big talk on sort of industry leading climate targets and things like that. Uh, in in his tenure in the past six six months, and consolidation as well, kind of removed some of the renewables and, and power heads and, and done a bit of a restructure. So it's clear that you know if someone has a vision for for what they want BP to be, and they uh, get handed the the big leather chair. This could be some, uh, some, uh, yeah, big change of positions on the way. Absolutely, and 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 I suppose you know, looking at that kind of question, and 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 a, and a fantastic segue. I hope uh, looking at that kind of question about sort of uh, transition hopes. Obviously, we had uh, in the UK uh, a, a sort of an auction round last week, uh, uh, offering sort of CFDs. There was a lot of discussion. Oh, sort of you know, the, the government was keen to sort of to to, to highlight the sort of the, the 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 big wins, but crucially. What were they missing, Andy? Yes, this is uh, the contracts for different CFD allocation round five, AR5, um, which you know, we've seen a lot of, I think, in recent days. Uh, big, big headlines about the role or lack thereof of offshore wind. Uh, Energy Minister Graeme Stewart called it a record-breaking round, which I would probably agree with, although perhaps not for the reasons that he said. Um, so th- we, we had 95 uh, clean energy projects awarded CFDs. It's up from the 93 in AR4, just shy of about four gigawatts of capacity and a £227 million budget. We saw wins for solar, for onshore wind and tidal, but obviously the big loser was offshore wind and floating wind, which had absolutely no bids. That also, I think, contributed to the the capacity drop. So it was 11 gigawatts procured in AR4, uh, down to four, obviously, this round. 
Um, Greenpeace's policy director, Doug Parr, said it was a monumental failure. Um, it's been the biggest disaster for clean energy in almost a decade, he described it. Scottish Renewables Chief Executive Claire Mack said it had been a major blow to Scotland and the UK's renewable energy ambitions, and uh, it was a terrible look for the UK on the international stage. I think it's safe to say that anyone kind of watching the sector or kind of reporting on this for the past six months, maybe not a surprise, um, still a little bit of a shock to see absolutely nothing. You know, you'd expect maybe bids and nothing awarded, but kind of nothing at all um, probably highlights the state that the wind sector is in. Um, and I think probably a little bit of a shock to the public, given kind of the messaging that we've heard about the cost of offshore wind plummeting every round reliably and, and kind of being the cheapest form of new generation. So what went wrong? I think the main thing is just like every bit of the economy, uh, the wind sector has been hit by inflation. So it's the cost of materials, uh, like steel, which is obviously just mammoth quantities needed to build these projects, the cost of capital to build them and to f the finance to fund them, services, installation, all of that. Uh, I think another reason is that the structure of the auction itself, so AR5 was the first time that we saw fixed bottom offshore wind moved into pot one. So that means that it was competing directly with other technologies like solar and onshore wind for the first time. So if you just take a look at the prices in that pot, offshore wind had a strike price, a maximum price for their bid of, of £44 per megawatt hour, and that compares with £47 for solar and 53 for onshore wind. So somewhat at a disadvantage in that part. Obviously, the, the thinking is that the economies of scale and, and the fact that the price has reduced every round would allow that to compete healthily. Inflation, as we've just said, has kind of changed those economics quite drastically. So th those are indexed to 2012 prices, but it reflects a uh, price today of around £60 per megawatt hour compared with wholesale prices, which on the whole kind of are trending closer towards 100. I checked this morning, they were 67. Um, so not too far off, but I think we've seen prices you know, routinely much, much higher than that. Um, so some commentators, Sam Richards, the founder of the campaign group Britain Remade, said that by capping the price, the sector could bid too low. The government had effectively set at a level that made it impossible for investors to meet their costs. I've also read that um, there's the possibility that a few were kind of anticipating changes to AR6. So at the moment, obviously, really strong headwinds for the industry are kind of a lot of just deciding to sit this round out, basically, and wait to see what more... Uh, more changes would bring to these rounds. Um, but it obviously is a concern. You know, we have a 50 gigawatt target for offshore wind for 2030. That includes 5 gigawatt of floating offshore wind. We've got about 14 at present. Um, so we have a long way to go in a really short amount of time to meet those targets. All of that is with no shortage of actual pipeline. There's, you know, close to 100 gigawatts uh, on paper somewhere <laughs> where the, the extent to which we're actually going to get there by the time that we've said is is uh, the problem, especially given the the time to consent and fund these new schemes. You know, the loss of even one or two big kind of two three gigawatt projects means falling short by by the deadlines that we've set, and we're already beginning to see that happen. Some of the AR four projects, uh, Vattenfall's one point four gig, Norfolk Boreas, they've already put that on ice, and Orsted's Hornsey three, another AR four winner, uh, they were saying earlier this year it's at serious risk. So we've got dropouts from the pipeline and then no new capacity added this year. Um, I think, yeah, it, it's not looking great, but it is fixable, I think, is, is the takeaway. So just sort of looking at how it went wrong, is it a question of government uh, just offering the wrong price? I mean, is it is it was government essentially not listening to industry, not looking at these inflationary pressures? And what 
the chances do you think of, of, of that sort of being correct is it is it is it this time next year that we that we have ar6 uh yes it will be so they're setting uh setting some of the parameters now i think we usually hear about what the kind of prices and the pot sizes are going to be in the spring so there is yeah there's time to address it in terms of what caused it i think yeah ultimately you know this is one of these cases where upping the price would have fixed a lot of, of things i think this is it, this is purely just uh, not updating the terms of the scheme in line with what is happening in the real world right now and that you know those things are happening fast right you know we i don't think we were talking quite to the extent of inflation you know at the beginning of the year uh, impact you know it was beginning to show up in, in what people were talking about i think we had kind of february march time uh orsted saying about its its hornsy 3 we needed kind of further support or it was looking at financing for it um, but price is just the huge thing, and, and all of the uh, all of the renewable energy advocates have kind of saying that is the first thing that they should do. So I spoke to with uh, Renewable UK's director for policy and engagement, Anna Musat, and she said, you know, sustainable pricing is the utmost important thing. It's the first thing that they should do. And there are lots of other conversations around things like non-price factors. So the idea that you would introduce kind of your supply chain commitments for the UK, and that would begin to get factored into your bids, so that. It's about a more sustainable ecosystem rather than just price. We've been talking about getting away from price as the only CFD metric for a little while, but she's basically saying that might need to go on hold. You know, if if you don't fix price first, there's not really any point in bothering with non-price factors because no one is going to bid anyway. So, price is ultimately it. the 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 worry there is is just that ripple effect, as I say. If you don't have these projects in the pipeline, the supply chain in the UK that we want to build, you know, they don't have the certainty of their investment. They can't build the capacity to deliver some of these. They can't put in their subcontracts. All of this, it, it cascades down. And, you know, missing a year out at this stage is, as uh, some of the observers have said, not a great look. I would say one one cause for optimism that I've heard, which is that uh, the lack of kind of any bids shows that the sector is serious about cost discipline. Um, so they're you know they're not prepared to be lost leaders. We saw a uh, result in Germany a few months back where the the bids were so low that people were really starting to question how on earth anyone was going to make money on these projects. So this was I think super majors getting involved in this German auction and building, bidding ultra low bids in a way that they a lot of people felt was unsustainable. Um, so this is fixable and it shows that the the uh, industry isn't kind of prepared to hammer itself into the ground at this point just to get bids on the table. Um, but clearly, it's it's a wake up call, right? And just as a final point, I mean, obviously, I've I've always kind of admired CFDs. I think it's quite sort of an elegant solution. I think of just sort of uh, financial sort of uh, artifice, I suppose. But I suppose the the challenge is when it's uh, a sort of a, a, a state chosen metric. That sort of that sort of problem around sort of flexibility. Obviously, government not the most flexible of beasts uh, and i suppose this this kind of highlights that problem but 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 you don't think that uh so this is you know going to be a sort of a, an existential challenge for the for the cfd i don't and i i haven't seen anyone kind of question the the entire nature of the enterprise and that i think a lot of people who are bidding in these see it as a successful model but it, it clearly needs some tweaks and it does need to be able to be flexible um to accommodate these kind of rapid changes and you know Hopefully the government is listening because we, you know, we now have a couple of uh, months to, to work on this to fix it and hopefully fix things for AR6 and maybe introduce some of these other factors. But clearly, you know, 
price is, is king at the end of the day. So uh, yeah, we'd, we'd hope they're uh, paying attention to Energy Voice's extensive coverage. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And I think, I think, I think we'll, 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 we'll close that off there. But I think uh, when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get some more ideas into perhaps some of the, uh, the impacts of, uh, of, of future plans. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So Ryan, thinking about the impact of of, of big plans in the RC, thinking about uh, those those kind of those that, that sort of investment, the big projects, you've been looking at I suppose the sort of the the, the other side of that, and, and and that kind of question of of, of jobs and, and and how they may work out. Yeah, so um, RGU uh, Robert Gordon University of Aberdeen uh, released a, a workforce uh, report earlier this week. Looking at how the uh, the transition to renewable energy is going to impact the landscape of the UK's energy workforce, uh, I, I spoke to Paul Delu, who was involved in the report, and we spoke a little bit about CFDs. So before we get off, I uh, just thought I'd quickly share his uh, his opinion. He said that uh, the, pro, uh, the CFD process served as a wake-up call for industry and the, uh, the system's auctions needed to be uh, thought through for, like Andy was saying, the, uh, the next round uh, this time next year. So, you know, there was still there was still definitely chat about that, but mainly it was covering, uh, covering the workforce, the, the number of jobs the industry supports and the, the potential for change going forward. The, the big headline figure that I think uh, both, you know, ourselves and I think BBC and various other publications also pulled out was that uh, RGU found that 95,000 offshore energy jobs in the UK could be at risk if investment does not increase significantly, RGU's words, across the energy sector. And, um, you know, this comes just uh, a week after offshore energies uh, UK said that uh, £100 billion of North Sea investment had been stalled over uh, political uncertainties. The RGU report outlines that £200 billion worth of spending is needed in the UK offshore energy sector by the end of the decade. And 90% of that, or round about 90%, uh, £175 billion will be spent on supply chain. That is where the majority of uh, jobs were, uh, according to RGU. It's quite a, quite a scary thought, you know, that uh, the, the sort of state of the, the energy sector in the UK, both just uh, from a political standpoint, but also uh, investment certainty, it could potentially cause thousands of jobs to just disappear or more more than likely go overseas. RGU uh, outlined that uh, in its Powering Up the Workforce report, the uh, offshore wind could uh, account for close to 60% of all spending by 2030, 
a 30% increase from today's figures. CapEx uh, will account for about 50% of spending, increasing from around 40% in 2023. So clearly there is a, a there, there will be scaling up in offshore offshore wind and uh, offshore renewables in general. But the, the industry needs to have that, or just investors you know, in, in the industry need to have that certainty, right? They need to make sure that they'll get that return on investment, that these projects will get the support they need from uh, policymakers. Um, but, you know, that it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, it, w- it wasn't just saying that thousands of jobs could be lost. There were three scenarios laid out by uh, RGU, as uh, these prediction reports often often do. Uh, a sort of worst case scenario, a best case scenario, and somewhere down the middle. Uh, if, if investment targets are met uh, in the UK offshore energy, uh, the UK offshore energy workforce, I should say, can increase by up to 50%, a massive increase, uh, from just over 150,000 jobs supported uh, this year to about 225,000 by the end of the decade. So uh, a lot to lose, but a lot to gain. A lot. Uh, I, there's a lot hangs in the balance with what happens. And I think the, uh, the story Andy was just covering really contextualizes that, you know, and looking forward to next year as well, how that's how that's going to play out also sort of hammers home how important investment in the sector is. In a media call just before RGU published this report, Paul Deleu said something that I thought was quite quite interesting. He mentioned that we're the first generation to see the impact of climate change, but we're also the last generation that can do something about it. Stuart Payne, the CEO of uh, the North Sea Transition Authority, was calling for smarter decisions made to uh, support the the workforce we have domestically. Oil and gas uh, investment is needed. Uh, it's essential to keep the supply chain here. You know, to keep keep uh, jobs and firms from going overseas. 90% of oil and gas workers were found to have, have skills that are have medium to high transferability into offshore renewables. That, it's worth noting that this, uh, when we're talking about oil and gas workers, uh, RGU also includes uh, HR and uh, sort of law firms or whatever that are sort of involved in the oil and gas sector. So they account for a a large percentage of that, but you know, I think the I think the the general co- uh, concept was it was only sort of like drilling firms and stuff that are maybe that ten percent that might struggle to uh, transfer. So we do need to be uh, securing uh, renewables work, and uh, in recent months, maybe it's been shown that we haven't been doing so, like uh, like Andy was saying with uh, Vattenfall and uh, the, the Orsteds project as well. You know this. There's a lot of uncertainty around renewables in the UK, and I think it's it's worth sort of drawing attention that we do need to encourage this investment. Otherwise, yeah, the, it will seriously harm both the UK economy and our energy security. I was struck by uh, something that Paul Deleu pulled out in the report, which is he was saying close to one in 200 jobs is, is related to offshore energy in the UK, but it's one in 30 in Scotland. And I think that really highlights the kind of the warning of this deindustrialization thing that I think is becoming more and more uh, prominent, especially when politicians in Scotland are talking a lot about you know just transition and how do you kind of meet this uh, 
ideas around just transition, clearly the potential for offshore energy and renewables while managing this tail off of oil and gas and, and making the two meet. It's incredibly difficult. I think the other thing that struck me with this is is the need for this, probably what Stuart Payne was saying, this kind of more holistic or more, this more system smarter approach to everything, you know, because it's not just about building stuff here, right? This is an export strategy piece. This is like community level pieces, right? <laughs> Training and opportunities and everything else. All of this is tied together and all of this is directly related to transition. Um, and yes, it's not just as, as simple as kind of bringing in a few platforms and sticking up a few turbines. Yeah, it definitely isn't. Uh, the policy needs to be in place. The uh, the investors need to to feel confident to put forward that investment, um, and the people still need to be here. Like I was saying, you know, oil and gas, the oil and gas workforce, the traditional energies workforce we have here in the UK that includes the supply chain and obviously the folks that are working on platforms in the North Sea will be needed uh, to transfer over that you know they have that skill set or at least majority of that skill set that we need and if we if we make make a sort of hostile environment for that sector then potentially we won't have what we what we need and then we'll we'll end up having to do what a lot of politicians have been describing as importing the energy transition which obviously has massive uh, carbon-related issues and, of course, uh, also economic issues. So it's 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 a like you say, Andy. It's a very complex topic, and it's one that I'm struggling to to try and get through every every aspect of in the this ten minute section on one podcast. But just to, just going to pull out a little bit, maybe right. So so it looks to me like the the UK government has approved a number of sort of projects recently in the oil and gas space, right? Uh, Murlock, uh, Affleck. Um, so it feels like that's quite positive, right? Whereas obviously we're sort of seeing the uh, the CFD offshore wind problem. Is do you get a sense maybe that the sort of the pendulum sort of swinging back towards oil and gas and away from this sort of energy transition hopes for the last kind of couple of years? Yeah, I think uh, to a certain extent we are, right? You know, I mean, like we've said recently, you know, our oil and gas prices spiked, and yeah, we have seen firms sort of commit more to oil and gas and less to renewables than maybe they'd uh, initially planned following the, the invasion of Ukraine last year. Um, so that obviously co- uh, caused a, a big shakeup in, in the global scale, not just obviously in, in the UK. So that, that has an impact. Um, I think generally, I, I, I think when you speak to speak to folks in industry, there's, a, there's a, an enthusiasm about renewables and you know you speak to guys like uh, david whitehouse at uh, offshore energies uk uh these they speak about you know wanting to to bring across that transition but there's there is the issue of uh profitability isn't there? there's a pro- problem with uh ensuring that like i say investors will get that return on investment that obviously they need <laughs> you know so i think there's there's a, there's a lot to be discussed here, a lot to be unpacked, um, and I think the the human element that this report really draws on is definitely the the sticking point to me. With you know ninety five thousand jobs potentially lost, but at the same time maybe a fifty percent increase in employment within the sector. Do you feel some of that debate filtering down, Ed? Because obviously Aberdeen. It's essentially a company town for oil and gas, right? And, and offshore energy in general. Everyone is somehow impacted by this. You know, I can imagine in, in other places, the UK isn't quite as pronounced. You know, that one in thirty versus one in two hundred thing. I think is a really apt stat for describing that. Are, are people as worried in the sectors that you talk to in you know, finance in London, for example, about this? 
or is it a sense of there is plenty more opportunities elsewhere? It is interesting, isn't it? I think, I mean, I think there's a feeling that, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is a sense in London that uh, the North Sea is very far away, you know, and uh, and I think also, you know, you sort of see these kind of, you know, statements kind of coming out about around some of the challenges of working there. I think it was Enquest talking last week about, you know, sort of the the, the difficulties of getting getting projects working kind of in the North Sea. And it kind of feels like, you know, maybe this is kind of um, driving maybe something of a sort of a shift to to other markets, maybe. Um, and, I, and, I, and I suppose, you know, just kind of, you know, uh, anecdotally kind of talk, speaking to friends and things, you know, there isn't a sense that um, people are thinking about the employment impact of, of, of moving away from hydrocarbons, right? I think that's not something that, that really comes to mind when people say, you know, let's move to uh, green hydrogen or, and solar panels. So I think, I mean, I think there is a kind of a bit of a disconnect. I think, yes, I think, I think, I think England, London, however you kind of slice it, is maybe uh, slightly ignorant, perhaps, of 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 kind of the impact and what's going on in in Aberdeen and the North Sea. Um, and and you know, I'd, I'd probably include myself among that. So uh, you know, that's uh, my bad. Do the reading, Ed. Do the reading. <laughs> Yeah, I will. I will double down in terms of my reading of your uh, of, of your output, guys, and I'll I'll try and do better for next week. Um, but I think that's we're, we're going to leave that uh, for, for for the moment, uh, and we'll come back after a break uh, and look at some opportunities in Ghana. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice; it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. So uh, this week, uh, or rather last week, the, uh, the, the, the Ghanaian president headed offshore to uh, Tullow, Tullow Oils, FPSO, uh, to celebrate the, the, sort of the startup of Jubilee Southeast, which is an extension to their uh, major Jubilee field. Uh, the, the, the field actually, the, the extension sort of produced, started producing, uh, I think it was in July. Um, but this was kind of the point at which, you know, the, the, the politicians turn up, they do some, uh, do some waving to the cameras. There's some sort of ceremonial wheel turning. Um, if there were babies there, I'm sure the babies would have been kissed. Um, you know, it's a it's a real uh, real chance for uh, a bit of razzle dazzle in the energy world. But I think um, sort of coming back to, to to look at the impact, I think you know rather fortunately, so Tullow Oil uh, produced its its first half results uh, this week, and has really said actually that this 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 Jubilee Southeast extension, which takes the the Jubilee field production to uh, to over a hundred thousand barrels per day, it's going to be the sort of the transformation, the inflection point. Uh, CEO Rahul Deer called it this morning, um, and 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 really, I think for Tullo, who've had this problem of a high debt load, they overextended, they they ran into real difficulties in I think it was about twenty nineteen when essentially the sort of the then sort of executive team really sort of ran into what felt like a brick wall, uh, and then and then largely left and 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 the company was kind of overhauled. They brought they brought in uh, Rahul Deer from uh, from a private equity backed company. 
and he really had this sort of focus on 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 sort of uh, consolidation and, and and working on what is working for 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 Tullow. So that was a real sort of zeroing in on on that project offshore Ghana, and uh, being much less expansive, much less uh, sort of signing deals to enter new countries, um, and just kind of you know a real kind of a back to basics kind of an idea. And so, you know, it's been a sort of a tough uh, three years. Obviously, that that debt load was was really kind of overhanging uh, the company for a while. But now, now he says that that they've reached this inflection point and that there are better times ahead. So he's, you know, they're, they're paying down debt. They are um, focusing on free cash flow, and finally, there might be some 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 light at the end of the tunnel for uh, for for for, for Tullo's shareholders who have been. On uh, very much a, a, a bumpy ride since uh, since 2019, when when everything came crashing down. I think was, there was one day when um, they came out and 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 you know put up some 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 warnings, and I think their share price crashed something like 70 percent in a day, um, which obviously is uh, is is a is a bit of a bit of an impact that that no company particularly wants to go through. Um, but it, it does feel like they they are kind of turning the tide. That said, you know. Nothing in this life is certain, so uh, we will keep. I, I imagine Rahul Deer's uh, fingers are going to be firmly crossed. Was this? Uh, I mean, this kind of period of strife was it? All of these kind of exploration boondoggles or whatever they were like tied into kind of fairy frontier stuff that they couldn't get out of the ground. I mean, what what was the kind of structural issue there? Yeah, so 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 debt had just been sort of running up, and and yeah, they they were they were stretched too thin. I think you know they they had this 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 kind of Ghanaian asset which. Uh, began producing uh, about I want to say 2013. I'm not sure. I should I should double check. But essentially, this this kind of gun end asset had been sort of you know the, the sort of the production side, but they had uh, offset this uh, this this amazing asset with a number of, of of exploration opportunities all around Africa and in fact beyond. They'd gone into places like Guyana and possibly even places like Jamaica, you know, in this sort of attempt to sort of search for that sort of frontier exploration upside. I think it was very much, um, I think, uh, the, I suppose it's that, that, that challenge of having explorers running a company is that they just want to explore. And, and, and possibly the production side is a, less, a bit less interesting. And, and, and it feels like the, the, the kind of the, the current executive team is much more uh, focused on you know the, the the task at hand, which is which is obviously you know as a company is 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 kind of uh, you know producing cash and, and and trying to trying to make that work. And obviously there is there is a kind of a, an ongoing question around around oil prices. Can I ask as well? Jubilee was obviously the kind of flagship field in the moment for Ghana finding oil production. Right, it was sort of two thousand or late two thousands. Was it Cosmos Energy? Kind of leading it. And there's a great film about the the kind of rush to develop called Big Man, which if you've not already watched listeners you should absolutely watch it's a great watch um you know does, is there still a bit of national pride around this with the extension obviously with a, a visit <laughs> babies kissing sounds like uh definitely worth a media up yeah 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 I, I think there is and i think there is uh so so i mean energy is obviously i mean energy it feels like it's a hot topic everywhere in the world right but I think in Ghana they've 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 had a lot of challenges in terms of sort of domestic power generation. So they've been sort of they went through this period of of, of blackouts called Dumsor where they had um, and they've got a lot of capacity generation capacity, but um, they struggled to cover their bills and 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 to find the the, the fuel to, to to run those assets. They import some gas. There's there's, there's there's sort of various ups and downs. So obviously. You know, it's one of those kind of big tests, isn't it, of of of, of a government is is can they keep the lights on? So I think 
Um, in terms of sort of, you know, securing those those gas supplies, which is crucial, that is very much a kind of a cornerstone. So obviously the, the oil production is nice to have, that provides revenues, which helps uh, Ghana, which, you know, has had various financial woes. It's had to go to the IMF fairly recently. So oil is nice, but it's really the gas that's transformational. Um, and I think, and, and and so Ghana, when when the Ghanaian president was there, he was, he was sort of talking about the... Uh, about kind of gas sales agreements, which are you know being discussed as we speak uh, between uh, between between the government and the companies involved, and obviously trying to secure more gas um, from the offshore to, to to bring onshore is going to be critical. And it's it's um, I mean the, the the pricing obviously is going to be a big question, but the pricing at the moment is extremely cheap for uh, Ghana. It's something like two dollars ninety an mmbtu. Um, which, when you compare it with LNG or other sources of gas, is is extremely competitive. So for 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 Ghana, this is a really you know nice nice way to kind of uh, secure the economy and and also as you say that for the for the president it'd be a nice political fillip. Um, just just out of interest, I've got I've clearly got jobs on the brain this week, and you know the, you were speaking about how how big of an impact this has on Ghana's economy and uh, sorry the wider energy piece in the country, but. Is has there been a confirmation on how how this is helping sort of local local economy in terms of employment? Is there increased sort of jobs coming from this development, or is it kind of status quo? So um, I think I mean I think yes I mean I think you know people like Tallow are obviously very keen to talk about local content. Uh, there are local content regulations. There are certain areas where companies coming in have to either partner with a company that's local or you know sort of find some way to kind of seek an accommodation. So I think in terms of sort of job generation that that is that is uh, an ongoing sort of uh, a, a, an effort and and you know that's obviously an interesting one but i think actually the, the the kind of the important part of that puzzle is is in terms of sort of creating that sort of economic boost onshore right i think uh we have not yet got to a point in this country where we face kind of things like rolling blackouts but uh, for those countries that are going through it, it's incredibly disruptive, right? I think, and in terms of you know trying to manufacture any sort of industry, if you don't have that sort of forward sight on, in terms of um, power generation, it's incredibly hard to make things work. So I think really for for for, for Ghana, it's that kind of question around sort of se- securing future future you know jobs and and, and that sort of economy. I think there is there is kind of a question around new developments in Ghana, which I think is is a kind of a part of that kind of wider piece of, of sort of you know where are the new opportunities for local content, and that's a tough one, right? Because Ghana has had some successes, as 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 we can see with Jubilee, um, any of the, the Italian companies is, is is also had some success off Ghana, but really those those opportunities have really sort of slowed down. We've seen um, exploration wells slowing. We've seen those projects moving ahead much more slowly than, than than before. So there's a question around, you know, is that sort of the wider macro kind of issues? Is that, you know, banks not wanting to lend to oil and gas or is that an internal uh, Ghana problem? And I think there is something to be said about, you know, kind of the the the, the challenge around, around, you know, cash money to, to, to kind of get those projects moving. But I think really there is also a question there about, about Ghana and to what extent... Does the government, does the Petroleum Commission want these projects to move ahead? They've got to make a decision. And if they want you know, these things to work out, then they're going to, have to make more of an effort. They, they, they launched a licensing round. We'll have to see how it goes. But um, it's, uh, there, are some, 
there's some challenges ahead, but it, it feels like uh, new gas from Jubilee and from the from the, the sort of Tallow's other project, which is called Ten. New gas from those those projects coming on shore would be a, a much needed boost. That's probably about all the time we've got for today. So thanks, Andy. Thanks, Ryan. Um, hope Alistair gets better soon. Thank you uh, both, uh, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.